Morning, church family. How's everybody doing today? Good start to the morning with some songs, and uh, we'll be ending with quite a bit of singing here in just a, a little bit. But uh, Brandon has covered us uh, with prayer as it relates to our worship of the Lord through time in his word. So we're all set that way. And can I just invite you uh, to take your Bible and join me this morning in uh, Matthew chapter 16. So first book of the New Testament and the 16th chapter of Matthew. If you wouldn't mind, uh, reach into your bulletin. There's a little uh, note page, kind of looks like this, and uh, we'll be kind of referring to that along the way, so that would be helpful if you had that. If you got out of the house without a Bible this morning, uh, Charlie is in the back. Just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you that we keep just for that purpose. And for the, the past few weeks, both in the bulletin and from the front, uh, we have been reminding you that, that this is an important day uh, today in the life of our church family as we have the opportunity to uh, share together in yet another annual vision and planning uh, gathering tonight. And everybody said with giddy anticipation, yay, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, You know, and I know that the annual business meeting of a church doesn't always rise to the top of the priority list in our lives, right? Am I right? <laughs> I'm right. We tend to kind of, in fact, you know, we tend to kind of poke fun uh, at church business meetings, imagining them to be rather long, boring gatherings. And and uh, I actually came on to a cartoon that went in this direction. And these two guys are talking, and the one says, my wife spoke at the church business meeting once. You're kidding. What did she say? Wake up. You're snoring. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, I, I, I think I can confidently say, church family, that this is not what tonight will be like for you, okay? Did you hear me on that? Okay, great. We're going to share a, a, a good time of just fellowship around a meal that uh, all of you will help to provide, and, and then we will transition from that time into the actual meeting time, which typically will take about an hour. And we'll start at 5 with the meal and then uh, try to get you on your way out the door by as close to 7 as we can get it. And the evening's going to move along. It, it's, it's well organized. There's, there's not a lot of downtime. And we'll even provide care for your kids if, um, if you could make it out tonight. And I really do hope that that would be possible for you to be with us. Because honestly, church family, this is, while it's Jesus' church, right, it's your church, too, unless you're visiting us today from some other place, and, and, and uh, we're, we're glad you're here. But, but kind of focusing on that thought, this, this, is, this is our church, and, and it's, it's our home, and uh, the things we talk about in, at the uh, annual meeting uh, are really uh, essential to the work that God is doing here. Though we only meet once a year in this fashion, it's really an important time, and so I am so hoping that you could be with us tonight, and and uh, quite honestly, the Lord has really laid it on my heart uh, this morning as we would share time together in his word to just maybe get a running start at this evening by thinking about Jesus' church um, in a more focused way, uh, just, just kind of kind of ramping up to tonight with some thoughts from God's word, and to kind of help us getting going in that direction, I, I, I want to relate to you uh, 
uh, a moment out of my own life from a couple of years ago, and I can recall it as if it were uh, just yesterday. I was having a conversation uh, over lunch with a fellow that I went to seminary with back in the olden days. We'll just leave it there. A long time ago, I went to school with this with this guy, and, and we were both preparing for whatever the Lord had for us, and both of us ended up going into uh, you know local church uh, pastoral ministry and and we hadn't talked in years and so we were talking over lunch and uh, of course he was interested in hearing about what the Lord had been doing with my life and and I with his and he was very interested in learning about how I had uh, been able to stay at one church for almost thirty years. And uh, because he had moved several times in this same amount of time. And so he said, tell me about your church. And I began by saying, and I remember this so clearly, I said, well, we're just a little church in a little town up in the mountains doing life with Jesus until he comes. We're just a little church in a little town up in the mountains doing life with Jesus until he comes. And then we went on, then I went on from there to explain that there's there's just enough turnover at Idlewild Bible Church that the congregation doesn't have enough time to get tired of me and <laughs> they leave and that's why I get to stay for 30 years, right? It's a great deal. I mean, I, you know, actually seriously, I went on to to talk about some of the things that make IBC special. Um the things that, things that I'm, I would like to share um, a little bit more even tonight. We had a great lunch, and then we parted company. But as I later reflected on our conversation, I remembered my opening words to my friend. We're just a little church in a little town up in the mountains doing life with Jesus until he comes. We're just a little church. That phrase just sort of hung in the air for me. The more I thought about it, the, the more uncomfortable I became with that statement. In fact, the more convicted I became, I was actually disappointed in myself that I had said that. Not that my friend recalled it or, or had any, any thoughts attached to it, but I regretted having said it. IBC is just a little church. I wasn't regretting the word little because we are a small church, right? We are. I'm okay with that part. The reason I was convicted was because as I heard those words, I knew in my heart that Jesus would never say, IBC is just a little church. He would never use that word just, ever. At the top of that note page that you have, um, you're going to see a picture of a tiny little country church located in somewhere USA. It stands in stark contrast, does it not, to the multi-million dollar mega churches of our day? I mean, it just stands out so starkly. Just a little church with a question mark. The question mark designed to expose the error of the statement. Is it true? Just a little church? Is that true? 
just a little church. IBC family, on this day, over lunch, I forgot something. I confess to you, I, I forgot something. I didn't choose my words well. I, I didn't represent IBC accurately. She is not just a little church. You know, sometimes we can live with something so closely and for so long that we forget what we are really a part of. We can forget that we are part of something here that is really extraordinary, something that is is actually supernatural, something infinitely bigger than ourselves, bigger than our point in time in history, bigger than our location on a map. You know, that day with my friend, I forgot that. And I said, IBC is just a little church. Well, that doesn't begin to capture the truth of who and what IBC really is and what you and I who call this place home are really a part of or wherever your church home might be if you're just visiting with us today. And so for just a few moments together, I'd like to invite us to remember afresh who and what we really are here in this place. And if by doing so, uh, your, 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 your love for and your appreciation for your church is, is just affirmed, well, great. If maybe uh, new thoughts are, are rekindled for, for what a remarkable thing this is that you're a part of, then, then all the better. Maybe we'll be just a little bit more alert to how we think about and how we talk about our church if we just reflect on some truths together. And if that happens, well, this is going to be a good time, time well spent. So, so let's just chase this down a little bit. IBC is much more than just a little church. Would you agree? But why is that true? Well, let's supply some answers to that question. And the first answer would be this. IBC is much more than just a little church because she is part of the only earthly institution that Jesus ever builds. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I don't like the word institution here. I'll tell you that. But it's the, only, it's the best word I could get. I pulled out all my thesauruses. I couldn't find another word that worked better, so I went with it. But I wish there was another word. IBC is part of the only earthly structure or, 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 or entity, institution that Jesus ever builds. You know, with all that Jesus could have done, might have done in the world, had the power to do, He, by his own admission, is only going to build one thing in this world. And that is his church. Your Bible is open to Matthew 16. And let me just give us a little bit of context as we drop you into this spot. Jesus is with his disciples uh, up in the hill country of northern Israel in a a beautiful location that... uh, uh, is right off at the foot of the of Mount Hermon, where the waters kind of spill off of Mount Hermon, and they and they kind of gather together, and they become the Jordan River. And when when Lisa and I were in Israel many years ago, we were at this place. And of all the places I visited on that that tour, this is the one of the places that really sticks out in my mind. And and it's up in this location that Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. We pick up the moment in verse thirteen. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, there's just a lot of speculation, Jesus, floating around on the part of people concerning your real identity. Who do people think I am? Well, they, they think you might be a reincarnated John the Baptist or, or maybe some other Old Testament character who has come back to life. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And that's when Peter steps forward and he, he makes a timeless confession here. Uh, he's often the mouthpiece, as you know, for the rest of the disciples kind of the director of the apostolic choir, one of the ancient church fathers used to like to say of Peter. Uh, he kind of directs the choir. And so he is, he's the one who speaks. And here he makes an unrivaled, impossible, really to improve upon declaration concerning the identity of Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what Peter was saying with that confession was that Jesus was the Messiah, God's promised, predicted, long-awaited deliverer, the one who would be fully God, but clothed in human flesh. He would be priest, king, prophet, and savior. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. That didn't, that didn't, that didn't come out of you. God in heaven, my heavenly Father, opened the eyes of your heart so that you could recognize my true identity. He did that for you. Which, by the way, is the only way that any of us know who Jesus is too, right? Is because God, in his grace, by his mercy, has opened our eyes so that we can see Jesus. We'd still be dead in sin, blind to his truth, were it not for his grace that opens our eyes, yes? We do not take credit for our knowledge of Jesus. It is all him opening our eyes so that we can truly see him. And there's many passages that we could look at that would confirm that. So, so you didn't come up with this on your own, Peter. God revealed this to you. And then I tell you, Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. What is the rock? The rock is the confession of Peter. It's not Peter, right? We're clear on that. It's not Peter. He's not the. I mean, there's a you know there's a whole part of Christendom that thinks that the rock is Peter. It's not Peter. The rock is his confession. Not upon you, Peter, am I going to build my church, but upon the truth that you have just declared about me, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it on this rock i will build my church 
Jesus never said that he would build anything else in this world. Not a college, not a seminary, not a radio ministry, not a mission organization or anything else. But he does say on this confession, on this rock, I will build my, say it, church. On this rock, I will build Idlewild Bible Church. That is such a fantastic statement. Do you know how precious it is? Do you sense the preciousness of this truth to us? It's a reminder to us that Idlewild Bible Church does not exist by the will of some visionary folks back in the 1970s when, when, when there was a little Bible study gathering and they said, we, we want to become a church. And that became IBC eventually. It, it, it's, not, it's not because of them. She doesn't exist because of dedicated workers or, or, or elders or deacons or, or all the faithful people who are in this room this morning. She exists because the master builder from heaven said that a little town up in the mountains of Southern California needs my church. That's why we're here. I will build my church, Jesus says. We're part of this promise that Jesus makes here in Matthew 16. Just a little church? (laughs) We're more than that. Let's enlarge Jesus' word picture here a little bit that he gives us in Matthew. Uh, I'll ask you to keep your finger tucked here in Matthew 16 because we're going to come back. But would, would you take your Bible now, run to the right in your Bible until you get to the book of Ephesians and chapter 2. And let's just enlarge upon this thought of what Jesus is building. Ephesians chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul here is writing to uh, a church family not unlike our church family here. And And maybe he's even thinking of Jesus' words when he likens the church to a building because here in chapter 2, he does the same thing. Verse 19, the Holy Spirit actually says this through Paul's pen. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're part of God's house. Built, here's the analogy, the word picture, built on the foundation of, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Stop right there for just a second. Jesus not only promises to build the church, but he places himself as the very foundation of the church, doesn't he? Again, on this rock, I will build my church. And he he causes the church to rest upon the written word of God. That's the, the prophets and the apostles. And, and, and how God spoke through them. So the Old and New Testament, the church is built on the truth of God's word with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And so it is a foundation that is solid and fixed and it never changes. It doesn't, there's no new revelation, right? The foundation is fixed. Whatever happens now with this building of God goes straight up. Doesn't keep going like that because the foundation is fixed. Jesus as the cornerstone. Verse 21. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Fellow lover of Jesus, IBC is not a building. 
It is, it is not a piece of ground. It is not an address. It is a spiritual building, a structure, a dwelling that houses God by his spirit. Just a little church? You've got to be kidding me. It's not made of wood and nails and windows and paint. That's not Idle Help Bible Church. It's made up the collective lives of all those who have been changed, transformed through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the church. The rock that we are built on is Jesus, and he is, he is building this thing. Just a little church, that couldn't be anything further from the truth. And then don't miss noticing there the the tense of the verb in verse 22. We are being built. Did you notice that? It's not like it's a a past tense thing that's already happened. Jesus says, I'm still building my church. We are being built. Jesus' church of which you and I are a part is still under construction. He's not finished with her yet. And, and if, you know, if the statistics are correct, and I just went uh, back and, and researched this this week um, to, to make sure that my numbers were correct, today, get this, talk about the grace of God, today 70,000 people are going to enter Jesus' church through faith in him around the world. 70,000 souls are going to come to faith in Christ and, and know what it means to have eternal life through faith in him. 70,000 more tomorrow. 70,000 more the day after that. More than 25 million in 2015. Just a little church. IBC is a custom made, divinely ordained, not made with human hands creation of the living Lord Jesus part of the only thing on earth that Jesus said he would ever build. Does that make you feel special? makes me feel special to be part of that. Just a little church? I don't think so. And and then let's remember this as well about Jesus' church. It's number two there on your note page. Jesus' church is going to what? It's going to win. It's going to win. IBC is on the winning side. If you're a betting person, bet on IBC. Okay? (laughs) Because we're going to win. How do we know that? Well, let's run back to Matthew 16. Your finger was left there, uh, so, so jump back into that place. And if we look once more again at verse 18, Jesus says, Peter... Upon this rock-solid confession of my identity as the Christ, the Messiah, God's promised spiritual deliverer, I will build my church. But Jesus doesn't stop with that statement. He continues by saying, I will build my church and the what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, who's saying that? God in the flesh, right? He ought to know. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a powerful, confident, assertive, triumphant statement. But what is Jesus really saying here? 
That phrase, the gates of hell, maybe your version uses the word Hades, was, was a Jewish expression for death. When the disciples heard Jesus say this, they instantly thought death. And so Jesus was saying, I will build my church and not even death can stop me or stop my church. Is that a big deal? That's a big deal. It's an awesome statement of power and of confidence. You know, death, death was Satan's most powerful weapon. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 refers to Satan as the one who had the power of death. Before Jesus came. He had the power of death. And he used that power to keep people in fear and in bondage all of their lives. He, he tried to use that power of death to, to put an end to Jesus. Thinking that if, if I kill the builder of the church, well then I kill the church. But the builder proved too powerful. Jesus broke the grip of sin, which results... Which, which has the result of death. He, he broke that at the cross. He destroyed the power of sin on resurrection morning when he came out of the tomb. He liberated from Satan's rule all who put their faith in him. And so in point of truth, Jesus breaks down the gates of hell and says the church will prevail. We win. Flip your note page over, would you? At the top of the page, you'll notice 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. You see it there? Are you with me? We'll actually put this up on the screen as well because what I'd like to invite you to do is to read it aloud, this passage with me, and, 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 and read it with the victory kind of a tone that it has, okay? Let's read it triumphantly, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we all say, amen and amen. Even the power of death, the strongest weapon Satan had, cannot prevent the ultimate triumph of his church. Just a little church. <laughs> Man. Though Jesus delivered a crushing blow to Satan by his cross and his resurrection, inflict, inflicted a fatal wound upon Satan, that has not kept Satan from trying to wipe out the church. Countless saints whose names are now known only to God have died as martyrs since the first century. Even to this day, they are still dying as martyrs for the cause of Jesus Christ. As many as 8,000 are known to perish every year around the world simply because they love Jesus. So the enemy doesn't rest. He doesn't stop trying to destroy Jesus' church. The most powerful weapon that Satan has, however, cannot stamp out the church because Jesus said she's going to win. Any student of, of church history will tell you that the blood of the martyrs becomes nothing less than the seedbed that grows up a whole new generation of believers, right? One is killed, two rise up. Two are killed, four take their place. Why? 
Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Jesus was perhaps reflecting on those truths when on the night before he was crucified, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have what? I've overcome the world. I think that's Matthew 16, 18. It's just worded a little bit differently, don't you? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Fellow Jesus follower, you and I, who are living for Jesus, who are alive because of him, and who attend Idlewild Bible Church today, or whatever church home you, you make your regular home, we are part of something that is eternal, something that cannot be defeated. It cannot be eliminated. It cannot be taken out. It cannot be destroyed. We are truly able to say this morning as part of Idlewild Bible Church that we are the undefeated. I like that. I like that thought. Not because of anything we've done, right? Not because of anything within us, certainly, but but because of what Jesus has already done. We are the undefeated. And, and, and Jesus' church, of which IBC is a part, will have a visible presence and a, and a testimony in this world until he comes. That's who we really are today. That's what we really are today. The undefeated, eternal masterwork of the Son of God. Just a little church? Are you kidding me? And, and then as a concluding truth, let's remember this. It's number three there on your note page. The church, which includes IBC, is the most precious possession that God has on the earth. Would you agree with that without us having explored it yet? Would you agree with that? That, that the church is the most precious possession that God has on the earth? You know, someone might ask, well, how do you know that that would be true? And, and really the answer would be, it's true because the highest price ever paid for anything in the history of the world was paid for the church, right? That would make it the most valuable possession, I believe, on the earth because the greatest price ever paid for it. Anything was the price paid for the church. You know, we're, we're still in Matthew and in chapter 16, but let me ask you to leave that place and just run a few chapters more to the right till you get into chapter 26. As, you, as I drop you into this moment, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before the cross. It's, it's only hours away. Judas and his betrayer's kiss are, are, are about to happen. We pick up the narrative in verse 36. Chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them, with his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, this little garden outside of Jerusalem up on a hill, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Then in verse 44, one more time, he went away a third time and said the same words again to his heavenly father. In this incredibly poignant moment, Jesus asks his father if avoiding the cross were possible within the father's redemptive purposes. Was there another way to deliver humanity from sin's penalty, from an eternal never-ending hell? Could, Could the cup be avoided? And that cup is such a deceptively subtle, subtle thing here that it's a small little three-letter word, and yet for Jesus, that word cup represents all of the wrath and all of the fury and all of the judgment of God poured out against all of the sin of all of mankind throughout all of its history from Adam up to this very moment and beyond. That's what the cup represents. God was asking his son to take that cup and to drink its contents to the last drop, asking his son to receive it undiluted, to become sin for us and then absorb the the, the just judgment of God against that sin, though he himself was sinless. The magnitude of the suffering and the, the horror that that cup represents for Jesus is beyond our ability to even remotely comprehend. Because God was asking Jesus to become our sin. And Jesus understood that, of course. But as always, the driving force in Jesus' life was the Father's will. If the Father willed it, Jesus would do it. And the Father so willed. And brothers and sisters, the church... And for our part, Idlewell Bible Church, the church becomes God's most precious possession on earth because he paid the ultimate price to have her. He paid with his son. His son's life, his son's blood poured out as our sin covering. That was the atonement price. That was the the payment price. Our Heavenly Father values us so much that He pays for us with the thing that is most precious to Him. Just a little church. You know, Scripture is not shy about reminding us of this truth of the price that it cost us to be the church. If you look on your note page, Acts 20, 28, Paul's writing the leaders of a church, and here's what he says to them at one point. He says, keep watch over yourselves and 
and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he what? Bought with his own blood. What's the most precious possession that God has on this earth? Church. And can we read aloud together the next passage? It's First Peter 1, 18, 19. Now, this is, this is the Peter who had trouble staying awake in the garden. But he's fully awake right here when, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words. Let's read them aloud together, can we? For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So valued is the church to God, so precious is Idlewild Bible Church to him, that nothing, not even the sinless precious blood of Jesus, would be spared so that he could have us. Does that make you feel special? Just a little church? Not to God. Oh, church family. This is who and what we really are. Jesus' one and only building project on earth. A spiritual building made up of souls resting on a foundation that cannot be moved with 70,000 Souls every day being added to the building. We cannot be defeated. We cannot be destroyed. We share in Jesus' victory, secured at the cross, sealed by by the resurrection. We cannot be overcome. We are the undefeated. And how infinitely precious we are to the Trinity. IVC, blood-bought, and more valuable to God than anything else in the universe. Just a little church. Let's pray together. Just a little church. Not to you, living God. Not to you, Lord Jesus. Not to you, indwelling Holy Spirit. Not to you. We confess to you, Heavenly Father, that we, why sometimes we just fall into a rut, we just get into a routine. We, we put, we put our, our church attendance on a Sunday morning as just a thing we, we, must, we, we need to do in our week, and we don't come here casually or flippantly or lightheartedly, but we don't come always reflecting on what we're about, what we're part of. And we confess that to you. We admit that to you. It's hard for us to hold on to these eternity-changing truths. So we thank you for the reminder today of who we are and what we are to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus for making a relationship with the God of the universe possible.
by your death and resurrection. And it does our souls good to remember how precious we are to you. We're not going to be beaten because you have overcome. May we stand firm, falling ever more in love with you and living more consistently before the world for your sake until we see you face to face. We love you, Lord Jesus, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen.